You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, good morning, America. I'm Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My uh, scheduled guest today, veterans and elderly advocate attorney Victoria Collier, is testifying before Congress this morning. She's also an Army veteran and truly dedicated to helping the elderly and her military brothers and sisters. We wish Victoria the best of luck today as she talks to Congress. Victoria has asked to be rescheduled, and I will certainly do so. Very fascinating lady. I'll be discussing the rich and famous in World War II shortly, but I'm doing something a little bit different this morning. I'm dedicating the first part of the program to all my brothers and sisters who have worn the uniform in the service of our country. Bear with me on this. Rabbi Roland Giltishan was ordained in 1936 and was an avid pacifist, as evident by his sermons prior to World War II. Yet he still served in World War II, believing the worldwide struggle to be a just war and the last resort for the good of humanity. He was the first Jewish rabbi to join the fight in World War II as a chaplain for the United States Navy. Assigned to the 5th Marine Division just prior to the landing on Sulphur Island, better known as Iwo Jima, he provided much-needed care for thousands of wounded Marine and Navy personnel during the ferocious yard-by-yard fighting on Iwo Jima. He was awarded three service ribbons for his role during that horrendous battle. After the battle was over, the Protestant chaplain of the 5th Marine Division asked Rabbi Giltishan to deliver a prayer at the non-denominational ceremony for the dedication of the 5th Marine Division Cemetery on Iwo Jima. The words of his prayer apply today, almost 76 years after the dedication. Now, this is the prayer unedited in its entirety, given by him on March 21, 1945. And I quote, This is perhaps the grimness and surely the holiest task we have faced since D-Day. Here before us lie the bodies of comrades and friends, men who until yesterday or last week laughed with us, joked with us, trained with us, men who were on the same ships and went over the sides with us as we prepared to hit the beaches on this island, men who fought with us and feared with us. Somewhere in this plot of ground may lie the man who could have discovered the cure for cancer. Under one of these Christian crosses or beneath a Jewish star of David, there may rest now a man who is destined to be a great prophet, to find the way, perhaps, for all to live in plenty with poverty and hardship for none. Now they lie here silently in this sacred soil, and we gather to consecrate this earth in their memory. It is not easy to do so. Some of us have buried our closest friends here, 
We saw these men killed before our very eyes. Any one of us might have died in their places. Indeed, some of us are alive and breathing at this very moment only because men who lie here beneath us had the courage and strength to give their lives for ours. To speak of memory of such men as these is not easy. Of them, too, can it be said with utter truth, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. It can never forget what they did here. No. Our poor power of speech can add nothing to what these men and the other dead of our division who are not here have already done to show the same selfless courage and peace that they did in war. All that we can ever hope for is to follow their example, to swear that by the grace of God and the stubborn strength and power of human will, that their sons and ours shall never suffer these pains again. These men have done their job well. They have paid the ghastly price of freedom. If that freedom be once again lost, as it was after the last war, the unforgivable blame will be ours, not theirs. So it is the living who are here to be dedicated and consecrated. We dedicate ourselves first to live together in peace the way they fought and are buried in war. Here lie men who loved America because their ancestors, generations ago, helped in her founding, and other men who loved her with equal passion because they themselves or their own fathers escaped from oppression to her blessed shores. Here lie officers and men, Negroes and whites, rich men and poor men, together. Here are Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, together. Here no man prefers another because of faith or despises him because of his color. Here there are no quotas on how many from each group are admitted or allowed. Among these men there is no discrimination, no prejudice, no hatred. Theirs is the highest and purest democracy. Any man among us, the living, who fails to understand that will thereby betray those who lie here dead. Whoever of us lifts his hand in hate against a brother or thinks himself superior to those who happen to be in the minority makes of this cemetery and of the bloody sacrifice it commemorates an empty, hollow mockery. To this, them, as our solemn, sacred duty, do we, the living, now dedicate ourselves to the right of Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, of white men and Negroes alike, to enjoy the democracy for all of them here who have paid the price. To one thing more, we do consecrate ourselves in memory of those who sleep beneath these crosses and stars. We shall not foolishly suppose as did the last generation of America's fighting men, 
that victory on the battlefield will automatically guarantee the triumph of democracy at home. The war, with all its frightening heartache and suffering, is but the beginning of our generation's struggle for democracy. When the last battle has been won, there will be those at home, as there were in the last time, who will want us to turn our backs in selfish isolation on the rest of organized humanity and thus sabotage the very peace for which we fight. We promise you who lie here, we will not do that. We will join hands with Britain or China or Russia or any other nation in peace, even as we have in war, to build the kind of world for which you died. When the last shot has been fired, there will be those whose eyes are turned backward, not forward, who will be satisfied with those wide extremes of poverty and wealth in which the seeds of another war can breathe. We promise you, our departed comrades, this, too, we will not permit. This war has been fought by the common man. Its fruits of peace must be enjoyed by the common man. We promise, by all that is sacred and holy, that your sons, the sons of miners and millers, the sons of farmers and workers, will inherit from your death the right to a living that is decent and secure. When the final cross has been placed in the last cemetery, once again there will be those who will profit, or whom profit is more important than peace, who will insist with the voice of sweet reasonableness and appeasement that is better to trade with the enemies of mankind than by crushing them to lose their profit. To you who sleep here silently, we give our promise. We will not listen. We will not forget that some of you were burnt with oil that came from American wells, that many of you were killed by shells fashioned from American steel. We promise that when once again men seek profit at your expense, we shall remember how you looked when we placed you reverently, lovingly in the ground. This do we memorialize those who have ceased living with us and now live within us. Thus do we concentrate ourselves the living to carry on the struggle they began. Too much blood has gone into this soil for us to let it lie barren. Too much pain and heartache have fertilized the earth on which we stand. We here solemnly swear this shall not be in vain out of this and from the suffering and sorrow of those who mourn this will come we promise the birth of a new freedom for the sons of men everywhere amen this uh radio talk show host and and veteran and uh, author and journalist I've never heard such profound words as that prayer or speech given on Iwo Jima. 
Folks, Iwo Jima was the only campaign during the Pacific War that the Marines suffered more casualties than the defending Japanese. Approximately 70,000 Marines participated, of which nearly 7,000 were killed and over 20,000 wounded. The Japanese hit an almost impenetrable caves and trench positions, numbered about 18,000. Only 216 of the Japanese out of 18,000 were taken prisoner. Their main defenders perished. That uh, prayer just really, really touches my heart. Folks, I'm going to talk about the uh, most fascinating generation, the rich and famous in World War II, and a few interesting uh, trivia details in just a few minutes. Uh, It's about time for our first break. I'll be right back with the rich and famous and trivia for World War II. Stand by. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. And we want to remind everybody that... um The Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame induction ceremony has been moved to April the 3rd and will be held at Johns Creek Newtown Park, which is where the uh, healing wall is, the replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C., that lists the 53,000 names of those that gave their all in Vietnam. So mark that down on your calendar, April the 3rd, and uh, we'll have more details for you as time goes on. With that being said, let's get back to Pete Mecca and a veteran's story. Welcome back, folks. Let's talk a little bit about the rich and famous in World War II and also some trivia from World War II. What a great, fascinating generation that was. Elliot Roosevelt son of President Roosevelt, served honorably during the war and by 1945 held the rank of Brigadier General. He almost did not receive the promotion because Congress was unhappy due to an incident that involved his dog, Blaze. Active duty military personnel were bumped from a flight across the country so Blaze, his dog, could be transported. Although Roosevelt was not aware that Blaze had been given priority, it nearly cost him his star. And guess who the pilot of that airplane was? None other than Hollywood singing cowboy, 
Gene Autry. Gene Autry spent most of his war flying C-47 cargo planes across the hump, the Himalayan mountain range, uh, in China and Burma and India. Film star Lee Marvin assaulted 21 beaches in the South Pacific with I-Company, 24th Marine Regiment, 4th Division. On Saipan, Marvin was one of only six Marines of the 247 in his company to survive the battle. Severely wounded, he spent 13 months hospitalized and received 100% disability for his injuries. His father fought as an Army sergeant in Europe. Marvin stated on the Johnny Carson show one night that the bravest Marine he ever saw was the beachmaster on Iwo Jima directing traffic, beach traffic, while under intense enemy fire. The beachmaster's name was Bob Kinshaw, the original Clarabelle the Clown on the Howdy Doody show, and he was also the star for 30 years on the long-running TV show Captain Kangaroo. Now, here's an interesting little twist of the story. Lee Marvin never served on Iwo Jima, and uh, uh, Bob Kingshaw never saw combat. Hollywood had a tendency to make their stars to be heroes in World War II when some of them were not. Now, Scarlett O'Hara's main squeeze wannabe, Ashley Wilkes, in the 1939 legendary movie Gone with the Wind, was played by British actor Leslie Howard. Howard and a double for Winston Churchill, Alfred Chinfalls, were on the same British Overseas Airways flight who was shot down by German fighters over the Bay of Biscayne in June of 1943. There were no survivors. Thing is, British intelligence knew from their top-secret ultra-program intercepts that the Germans planned to shoot down the plane. In spite of this, the airplane's crew had not been warned because British intelligence did not want to tip off the Germans that their own top-secret codes had been broken. William Patrick Hitler, nephew of Adolf Hitler and son of Hitler's half-brother, served in the United States Navy during World War II. That's right. Hitler served with the Navy in World War II. After the war, he moved to New York City under an assumed name. Most likely a good decision on his part. Now, Hollywood publicized famous actor Charles Bronson as having flown as a gunner on bombers during World War II. Well, that's Hollywood for you. Not exactly true. Bronson never left the States and drove a delivery truck during the war in Kingman, Arizona for the 760th Mess Squadron. Now, Dory Miller, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. in the hit movie Pearl Harbor, was a mess attendant aboard the battleship USS West Virginia when the Japanese attacked our naval anchorage on December 7, 1941. Dory was officially credited with shooting down two Japanese planes plus six more unofficially. He was the first African-American in World War II to be awarded the Navy Cross. Later in the war, Dory was killed when the aircraft carrier in Lipscomb Bay was torpedoed. No doubt, why, no doubt why he was preparing a feast for the crew. It was on Thanksgiving Day, 1943.
In my opinion, I believe the bravest men and women in uniform are the submariners. To serve and fight beneath the sea is not for the faint of heart. As one old submarine noted, submarine noted, there are plenty of planes at the bottom of the sea, but the Navy has never left one submarine in the sky. <laughs> While this may be true, there is not enough beer or any other form of alcohol to lessen my good sense for me to volunteer as a submariner. Albeit, now that said and done, apparently the U.S. Navy was aware during World War II that a good many submariners enjoyed a shot of booze on occasion. Thus, adding the chemical to render the alcohol in Navy port torpedoes undrinkable. Not to be outdone, submarine crews still drain the alcohol from their torpedoes and strain it through bread thus rendering the alcohol drinkable again. Designated torpedo juice, the fiery concoction was 160 proof. Now, not to be outdone, remember the good old PT boats like from McHale's Navy? The patrol torpedo, PT boat crews, drained the torpedo fluid from their torpedoes, distilled it, then mixed the substance with grapefruit juice to make a potent drink called the Pink Lady. Their concoction was 190 proof. <laughs> Don't know if I want to touch that. Here's a little trivia. The Ford Motor Company produced the last civilian car during World War II on February 10, 1942. Converting to wartime production on various levels, one vehicle Ford produced was the practical and legendary Jeep. Before the war ended, they produced almost 300,000 Jeeps. Now, early in 1945, various Allied aircraft were followed by flashing lights and unexplained fireballs. They were speculated to be some type of remote-controlled aircraft via radio signals by the Germans. Now, without reliable identification, they were nicknamed Foo Fighters since 1948. They have been known as flying saucers. Female war correspondent Barbara Fitch was the first woman to set foot on Iwo Jima while the battle was still raging. She flew in on a Navy C-47 hospital plane, observed the appalling intensity of the battle, got back on the plane and left the island. <laughs> I don't blame her. The precursor to the CIA, the OSS, invented a gadget during the war called a Firefly. Placed in the gas tank of an enemy vehicle, 90 minutes or perhaps 10 hours later, the device would detonate and blow up the vehicle. That's a good old CIA for you. You may have heard of Gerhardt Mountain, maybe not. Gerhardt Mountain is located in the vicinity of Bly, Oregon. It is the only location on continental North America that a Japanese bomb is known to have killed anyone. Dropped from a balloon, the bomb killed six people on a picnic, five of which were children. Now, I think most of you heard of the northern bomb site used by the Americans in World War II. That bomb site was so valuable and secretive that it was removed from the B-25s on the Jimmy Doolittle raid over Japan on April 18, 1942. Well, what were they going to use for a bomb site? 
Captain Charles R. Green devised a gadget to replace the Borden, uh, Norton bombsite, which proved to be surprisingly accurate. He made the device from 20 cents worth of scrap metal. <laughs> During World War II, the Empire State Building was the world's tallest building, standing 102 stories high. On July 28, 1945, Dick Fogg blanketed New York. Lieutenant Colonel William Smith, Jr., a graduate of West Point, who had flown combat for two years in Europe and been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and four air medals, apparently lost vis- visibility in the fog and crashed his B-25 Mitchell into the Empire State Building between the 28th, I'm sorry, the 70, 78th and 79th floors. The building remained structurally sound but 14 people were killed and 25 injured. Looking at old photos of the stunned civilians on the ground gazing up at the building is eerily reminiscent of 9-11. A B-17 assigned to the 508 Squadron, 351st Bombardment Group of the 8th Air Force, was nicknamed Murder Incorporated. On November 26, 1943, its usual crew flew a spare bomber on a raid over Brenham. The bomber was damaged, and the crew had to bail out. They were captured by the Germans, still wearing their flak jackets, with Murder Incorporated painted on the backs. The German propaganda machine used the jackets as an example to portray the Americans as a bunch of gangsters. (laughs) The first American soldier to enter the heart of Berlin during the war was Harley Natchez, a Native American Indian. Speaking of submarines, U.S. Navy men referred to the German, German submarines as a hearse. The German crew members were referred to as pallbearers. I think uh, most folks are familiar with the cigarette Lucky Strike and its recognizable red emblem on the package. Before World War II, Lucky Strike's emblem was green. But the dyes used to make a green emblem were needed for the war effort. The American Tobacco Company changed the emblem to red, and it's been that way ever since. Old Lucky Strikes. American General and future President Dwight Eisenhower, you know what his favorite reading material was? Westerns. You know what the favorite reading material of Adolf Hitler was? American Westerns. Now, George landed with the United States Marines on Iwo Jima. It was George's third landing. Oh, by the way, George was a dog. Now, Army paratrooper Lieutenant Clover parachuted into Arnhem during the uh, Bridge Too Far, the famous Operation Market Garden. Sadly, Myrtle parachuted with him, and sadly, Myrtle was later killed in combat. Oh, Myrtle was his pet chicken. My God, well, the greatest generation... <laughs> ever be forgotten. I doubt it seriously. I'm going to get to some uh, of the rich and famous 
who served in World War II, and you're going to be very surprised about these well-known individuals and their courage and service to this country in World War II. Folks, I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Okay, Pete, coming back in... Three, two, one, and it's yours. All right, folks, let's talk a little bit about the rich and famous in World War II. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you remember Julia Child, American cooking uh, uh, teacher, author, and television personality. Well, during World War II, she joined the um, Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. She did that because she had volunteered for the Women's Air Corps and also the United States Navy's waves. But she was rejected because she was too tall. Julia Child was six foot, two inches tall. As a research assistant to the Secret Intelligence Division, she typed 10,000 names on white note cards to keep track of officers. For a year, she worked at the Emergency Rescue Equipment Section in Washington, D.C. as a file clerk. And then as assistance to develop, uh, to help develop a shark repellent needed to ensure that sharks would not explode ordnance targeting German U-boats. In 1944, she was posted to what is now Sri Lanka, where her responsibilities included restoring, cataloging, and channeling a great volume of highly classified communication for the uh, OSS's clandestine stations in Asia. Now, she was uh, a letter posted, uh, posted in China. When Child was asked to solve the problem of too many OSS underwater explosives being set off by curious sharks, Child's solution was to experiment with, with cooking variations of different concoctions as a shark repellent, which were sprinkled in the water near the explosives and repelled the sharks. Still in use today, the experimental shark repellent marked Child's first foray into the world of cooking. As they say, the rest is history. Julia Child. Okay, folks, you remember uh, the, the television series Get Smart with Don Adams? Oh, yeah. Great, great uh, television show. In World War II, he joined the United States Marine Corps. Guess where he served? Guadalcanal. But his combat service was short-lived. He contracted blackwater fever, a serious complication of malaria known for a 90% rate of fatality. He was evacuated and then hospitalized for more than a year at the Navy Hospital in Wellington, New Zealand. After his recovery, he served as a Marine drill instructor in the United States Navy. 
Get Smart. Maxwell Smart, Agent 86. How about uh, Eddie Albert? Remember Eddie Albert? I think most people remember him from the uh, television series, series uh, Green Acres with Zsa Zsa Gabor. Well, during World War II, let me see here. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, during World War II, he worked for U.S. Army Intelligence, photographing German U-boats in Mexican harbors. On September 9, 1942, Albert enlisted in the United States Coast Guard and was discharged in 1943 to accept an appointment as a lieutenant in the U.S. Naval Reserve. He was awarded the Bronze Star with Combat V for his actions during the invasion of Tarawa in November of 1943. When, as a coxswain of a U.S. Coast Guard landing craft, he rescued 47 Marines who were stranded offshore and supervised the rescue of 30 others while under heavy enemy machine gun fire. Green Acres. Eddie Albert. James Arness, good old Matt Dillon from Gunsmoke. You guys remember him? Well, James Arness... Big guy. He was six foot seven inches tall, and he wanted to join uh, the the uh, Air Force, but of course he was too tall. <clears throat> so he ended up as a rifleman on Anzio Beach <clears throat> on January twenty seventh, nineteen forty four. He was wounded so badly he had to be evacuated out, and he had a leg injury so bad that he walked with a limp the rest of his life. You remember his uh, uh, buddy, Chester Good, his deputy, always had a uh, limp because he had a artificial leg. Well, it was James Arness, Matt Dillon, that actually had a real limp. And in some of the scenes in Gunsmoke, you can see his uh, face when he mounted the horse sometimes. Uh, he was in chronic pain with his leg injury. James Arness, Matt Dillon. World War II. Have done real travel. Richard Boone. Remember that, guys? He was in about 50 films during his career. Richard Boone dropped out of Sanford University and then worked as oil rigger, a bartender, a painter, and writer in 1941. He joined the United States Navy and served on three ships in the Pacific during World War II. He saw combat as an aviation ordnance man, air crew, and a tail gunner on Grumman Avenger torpedo bombers. Richard Boone, have gun real travel, reads the card of a man. Okay, I know you folks know Ernest Borgnine. My goodness, star of From Here to Eternity, uh, Bad Day at Black Rock, The Wild Bunch, McHale's Navy in... Uh, on TV with uh, Tim Conway, Academy Award winner, Ernest Borgnine. He joined the Navy in October of 1935 after graduation from high school. He served aboard destroyers and minesweepers 
and was honored discharge from the Navy in October of 1941. In January of 1942, he re-enlisted in the Navy after attack on Pearl Harbor. During the war, he patrolled the Atlantic coast on an anti-submarine warfare ship. And in submarine, uh, sorry, September 1945, was armored discharge from the Navy. He served a total of almost 10 years in the Navy. I guess he was well-trained for McHale's Navy on TV. Okay, folks, you, you remember Mel Brooks. My goodness, I, I mean, Blazing Saddles, Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein, History of World Part One, Spaceball, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, uh, famous, famous actor and producer. Mel served in World War II. He was drafted in the United States Army in 1944. After scoring highly on an Army general classification test, his high IQ sent him to the elite Army specialized training program at the Virginia Military Institute to be taught skills such as military engineering, foreign languages, or medicine. Manpower shortages led the Army to disband that training program, and he returned to basic training at Fort Steele, Oklahoma in May of 1944. He served as a corporal with the 1104th Engineer Combat Battalion, 78th Infantry Division, defusing landmines as the Allies advanced into Nazi Germany. He also fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Mel Brooks. All right, folks. Art Carney. Remember Art Carney? Oh, yeah. Jackie Gleason's sidekick in the Honeymooners. Star of Harry and Tonto. Many, many well-known TV shows and movies. He was drafted in the United States Army as infantryman and machine gun crewman during World War II. During the Battle of Normandy, serving with the 28th Infantry Division, he was wounded in the leg by shrapnel and walked with a limp for the rest of his life, just like James Arnest did. As a result of his injury, his right leg was three-quarters of an inch shorter than his left. The price we pay for freedom. Now, Jackie Coogan, a lot of you may not remember him. He was uh, one of the first child stars in the history of Hollywood when, when he appeared with Charlie Chaplin in the film classic, The Kid. But you may remember him as the bumbling... Uncle Fester in the 1960s television series, The Adams Family. Well, Jackie Coogan enlisted in the U.S. Army in March of 1941. After attack on Pearl Harbor that December, he requested a transfer to Army Air Force Services as a glider pilot because of, this, of his civilian flying experiences. Graduating the Advanced Glider School with the Glider Pilot 
aeronautical training and the rank of flight officer, he volunteered for Hazard's duty with the 1st Air Commando Group. In December of 1943, the unit was sent to India. He flew British troops, the Chendents, under General Orgen, Wilgate, uh, Wingate on March 5, 1940, for landing them at night in a small jungle clearing 100 miles behind Japanese lines in the Bummer campaign. The kid, the glider pilot, Jackie Cooper. Well, remember Tony Curtis? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tony Curtis. My goodness gracious. Uh, some like it hot. Operation Petticoat. The Boston Strangler. Um, Houdini. I mean, this guy, I don't know how many films he starred in. Great, great actor Tony Curtis. He enlisted the United States Navy after attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, he was inspired by Cary Vance Rowe in the movies Destination Tokyo and Crash Dive with Jerome Powell. So he joined the Pacific Submarine Force. He served aboard a submarine tender until the end of the Second World War. On September 2nd, 1945, he witnessed the surrender of the Japanese in Tokyo Bay from his ship, who was only about a quarter of a mile away. Tony Curtis, my goodness gracious. Kirk Douglas. Oh, my goodness, we remember Kirk Douglas, don't we? Oh, my goodness gracious. The detective story, The Bad and the Beautiful, Paths of Glory, Spartacus, um, Seven Days in May with Burt Lancaster, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a Broadway play. In 19... He joined the Navy in 1941, shortly after the United States entered World War II, where he was served as a communication officer in anti-submarine warfare. He was medically discharged in 1944 for injuries sustained from the premature explosion of a depth charge. Kirk Douglas. You never knew that about the man. Well, uh, we're, we're getting about approaching our last commercial here, and uh, I wish I had more time. So many, many people served in World War II that are well-known and famous. But we'll be right back, and I'll try to cover a few more for you. Stand by, folks. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. And I'd like to add to that, uh, if you're a graduating senior from high school or you've already graduated from college or just wanting to decide what to do with your life, take a look at the military. I can guarantee you one branch of the military has your life's dream 
right there waiting for you. So take a look at the military and make it a, a good choice. The military today is unlike any other time in in history and uh, they have so many skills that you can learn and what a good look it is on your resume when you go for a job and it says you know honorable discharge from so with that being said let's get back to hollywood and pete mecca and a veteran's story and here's pete all right thank you uh david Folks, I, I wish I really had more time. Uh, so many guys and, and ladies served in World War II that we know their names. Um, uh, Richard Burton, famous actor, married Elizabeth Taylor, one of her husbands. <laughs> he served in the Royal Navy. Um, Ossie Davis, great actor, U.S. Army. Uh, Charles Durick, I don't know if you remember Charles Durick. Uh, great actor. During World War II, he was drafted at the age of 20. On June 6, 1944, During was assigned to the 1st Infantry Division and in the first wave of American troops that landed on Omaha Beach during the invasion of Normandy. He would be the only survivor of his unit that arrived in France on D-Day after being wounded by a German anti-personnel mine in the Bocage. He spent six months recovering. Great, great star, great actor. Served his country violently. Okay, also, folks, uh, uh, what's up, Charlie Brown? Where's Lucy? Okay? Peanuts creator, Charles Schutz. I know you know it, Charles. He was drafted in the United States Army, served as staff sergeant with the 20, 20th Armored Armor Division in Europe during World War II as a squad leader on a 50 caliber machine gun team. His unit saw combat only at the very end of the war. Schultz said he had only one opportunity to fire his machine gun, but he forgot to load the damn thing. <laughs> the creative peanuts, Charles Schultz. I know you guys remember the famous character actor Jack Palance. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, Shane. He was a bad guy in Shane. Uh, he won an Oscar for his role in City Slickers. Well, a lot is uh, told about Jack Palance. Uh, he was uh, in the Army Air Corps with the 455th Bomb Group. And that rough-featured face of his required facial reconstructions from terrible injuries he received in the 1943 crash of his B-17 bomber that crash-landed in Britain. Now, it was also rumored that he uh, received face injuries when he bailed out of a B-24 Liberator bomber. Uh, Truth is, he was in the Air Corps, but he never saw much combat at all. And... He said, if the military had reconstructed my face, they could have done a much better job. His face injuries and rough features was from his fighting career before the war. He was a professional boxer. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. Ronald Reagan. I think you remember Ronald Reagan. (laughs) 
He was a captain in the U.S. Army Air Corps. Because of severe hearing loss, he was not allowed any flying duties. However, he appeared in training films, and prior to the war, Ronald Reagan was a cavalry officer in the Nebraska National Guard. I bet you didn't know that. Don Rickles, remember Don Rickles? Hey, hockey puck, you remember Don Rickles? Great guy, great comedian. He served on a destroyer during World War II, and he said of his employment, it was so hot and humid, the crew rotted. <laughs> Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney. PFC served 21 months with units entertaining the troops, and that's what he was good at. Great guy. Carol O'Connor, remember Archie Bunker? Merchant Marines during World War II. They had the second highest casualty rate percentage-wise, except for the U.S. Marines. Very, very brave men. Tyrone Power, I don't know if you remember him, Tyrone Power? United States Marine Corps pilot in the South Pacific. Rod Sterling, remember that? Do-do-do-do-do-do, Twilight Zone, Rod Sterling. He was with U.S. Army Paratroopers. Robert Stack, you remember him from uh, many movies, and also he played uh, uh, in the Untouchable Row, a TV series. He was uh, U.S. Navy. Because of his expertise as an Olympic champion skeet shooter, Robert Stack was assigned to teach anti-aircraft gunnery. James Whitmore. Wow, United States Marine Corps, World War II. Oh, by the way, uh, I know you remember Humphrey Bogart. Who doesn't know Humphrey Go, uh, Bogart, Castle Blake, and so many other films like the African uh, Queen? Uh, he served in the U.S. Navy. Uh, he was wounded in World War II. I'm sorry, was wounded in World War I. And he tried to enlist in World War II, join the Navy again, but he was turned down because of his age. 007 Sean Connery, he served with the Royal Navy in World War II. All right, folks, Don Knotts, he served. Audrey Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, remember her, Breakfast at Tiffany? What a great, great actress. Oh, my goodness. Uh, her experience in World War II was unbelievable. Uh, she ran secret messages uh, to the Allies in World War II. Uh, her, uh, she joined the Dutch Resistance in World War II. Uh, her parents hid uh, paratroopers in their home during the Battle of Arnhem. Uh, she witnessed the transportation of Dutch Jews to concentration camp. She later stated that it, it was a horrible situation everything else, but she came to America and, and looked what she did with her life. Uh, she said she remembered uh, uh, very sharply one little boy standing with his parents on the platform uh, being transported to the concentration camps. The little boy was very pale, very blonde, wearing a coat that wasn't was much too big for him. He stepped on the train, and he said, I was a child observing a child going to his death. My goodness. I mean, the, the, the sacrifice and... and what some of these people, people we know, people we've seen in films have gone through to, to, to preserve our freedoms. And now, what we're going through in America, 
Yes, and, and what we're going through with Hollywood in America these days. It's incredible as to what we're experiencing and what they did during World War II. The contradiction is unbelievable. They know Clark Gable. That Butler and Gone with the Wind. He did serve in World War II, and that is one man who was built up as a war hero, but he was a war hero. He spent most of 1943 in England with the 351st Bomb Group. He flew five combat missions, including one to Germany. He had a piece of flak go through his combat boot and barely, barely missed his face. Uh, Hollywood, after that incident, Hollywood got in touch with the Army, and they got Clark Gable off the B-17s. They didn't want their leading man uh, to, to become a posthumous, posthumously a hero. Uh, folks, I'm going to uh, close out with something that was sent to me by Carl Skip Bell. He's the executive vice president of the uh, Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association, of which I am a member. Now, he got this email from a veteran of the uh, Vietnam and a member of the Veterans of Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association who lives in Washington State. It is an eloquent reminder of why we did what we did in Vietnam. And I quote, Yesterday, Chong and myself walked behind our, uh, walked into a, a local Costco here in Washington with me pushing the car along behind the boss, his wife, as usual. After a few minutes, I noticed an Asian man, about 50 years or so old, with two young children with him following me and talking Vietnamese to the kids. After a moment, he approached me, looking at my Vietnam Helicopter Pods Association hat, and asked me if I had flown helicopters in Vietnam and where. When I told him, he broke down and started crying and speaking in Vietnamese. According to his granddaughter, his family was evacuated during a raging battle around Tam Key and flown to a safe place. It took some time for, before he regained his composure and endlessly thanked me for what we did and the life we had given to him and his family. I'm sure it wasn't me in this case, but it was someone like me because all we did was what needed to be done when it needed to be done. I just represented that hero in his life at that moment. He asked me before we parted, why did we do it, and would I do it again? Of course I would. And people like him are the reason why. A bit of an emotional experience, amazing who appreciate our sacrifice and who didn't. I remember this man forever. Remember this event when someone asked why the blank we were doing there. What were we doing there? 
after all these years, we haven't answered that question that we can live with. Simplify. You know, folks, um, I, I guess I'll close with, with this right here. Uh, Jimmy Stewart, famous actor. I think everybody just about knows he served in World War II as a bomber pilot. And his scene in the Frank Kappa movie, It's a Wonderful Life, the scene where he is thinking about jumping off the bridge and committing suicide. But he's saved by the angel, the second-class angel Clarence Oddbody. Uh, he jumped in the water to save the man. But in truth, Frank Kappa who was the producer, uh, he wanted Jimmy Stewart in the lead because he thought that Jimmy Stewart could relate to the part about the guy who wants to commit suicide because of Stewart's combat experiences in World War II. Stewart said, well, wait just a minute here. That's not what I want to do. He finally talked Stewart into doing the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Stewart flew combat in World War II, and it affected him for the rest of his life. He saw planes go down. He saw men blown out of the skies. He gave up a salary of $12,000 per week as an actor for $21 per month as a GI. On his third mission, 35 B-24s hit B-1 rocket launching sites in France. Except for two B-24s that collided during takeoff, all the bombers returned without a scratch. Got to wrap it. Okay. I don't know, folks. I, I, I'm just going to say this. We, we have an entire different generation in Hollywood now actors who really don't understand what it is to be an American, in my opinion. And we had so many serve in World War II, uh, and they did a great, great job. Uh, God bless the greatest generation. We are still here and not talking Japanese or German because of these individuals. My parents were of the greatest generation, and I think they did a pretty good job raising their only son. God bless, folks. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening in. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.